we are seeing that there's waning demand across Canada, and I, I almost would say a lack of urgency when it comes to the population lining up to get their booster doses. Many patients, when you talk to them, they say they feel two doses of the vaccine are good enough. The COVID-19 booster really isn't a priority for some Canadians. Why do you think that is? Like I think a lot of it is in how we frame the conversation. In the preamble just then, you framed it as a booster. And I think more broadly, it seems like this probably is a three-dose vaccine that was studied initially as a two-dose vaccine, plus we've added this third dose. But I think in the end, we probably made some mistakes in how we messaged this vaccine and its rollout. Has that impacted it directly, it's difficult to say. There's probably lots of reasons why people aren't getting their third doses as quickly as they need to. So how we frame the communication around whether it's a booster, hold that thought for a sec. Alon, any thoughts about this? Yeah, it's a very important point. The perception was, you know, get your two doses and we're going to be out of this pandemic kind of thing. Hmm. And so that was very, you know, maybe directly or indirectly messaged in various jurisdictions, the United States and Canada. So the perception was we should be done. Why are you asking me to get more done? And it became clear that as variants emerged, the efficacy of vaccines against mild or asymptomatic disease wasn't as good as it previously was. And to some extent, there's slightly less protection against severe disease as well, especially in high-risk populations. So I think it was that framing that, that really makes people not understand why a third dose is necessary. And perhaps framing a discussion more like we think about flu vaccination hmm. might help in the future because it's certainly possible that perhaps for slightly different reasons, we're going to need more than one dose as a booster in the future. Hi, my name is Lon Vaisman. And my name is Sren. You're listening to the Find My Vaccine podcast. Well, it's been nearly four months since we began administering COVID-19 booster doses, but there clearly are a lot of Canadians who are in no rush to get one. Those fully vaccinated with an additional dose, i.e. those 18 and older, were eligible. Only about 56% of them have received their booster dose as of today. Some don't see an urgency to get boosted. They may think they're safe with two shots. With the current wave of the pandemic, booster shots have become a subject of many debates. An expert group convened by the World Health Organization recently stated it strongly supports urgent and broad access to booster doses of COVID-19 amid the global spread of Omicron, a reversal of its previous policy decision. Ontario announced it will scrap most mask mandates, including in schools, restaurants, gyms, and stores. Across the province on March 21st, following in the footsteps of several other provinces, including Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Quebec, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and very recently, BC. It's almost like a whole country we've listed off there. Today, we'll chat about the COVID-19 vaccine boosters and whether they're really necessary. We'll also explore how to effectively frame the booster conversation with your patients. With waning demand, should we be thinking of adding a booster requirement to vaccine certificates? We'll also touch on how to ensure access to COVID therapeutics, specifically antivirals. In its new national COVID-19 preparedness plan, the White House recently announced a nationwide test-to-treat initiative under which people can visit one-stop shop sites that offer free COVID-19 testing and prescription antiviral medications on the spot if they test positive. 
Well, today we have two very special guest experts, one's from the West and one's from the East, to shed some lights and maybe debate a bit about some of these considerations. We don't have a boxing ring showcase here today, but we'll definitely see if we can add some sound effects. So let me start by introducing our first guest on the East Coast, Dr. Alan Weisman. Uh, he's an infectious disease and infection prevention and control physician and a hospital epidemiologist with the University Health Network and at the University of Toronto. Here in the West Coast, we have Dr. Srinivas Murthy, who's an Associate Professor of Medicine at UBC's Faculty of Medicine Department of Pediatrics, as well as a Critical Care and Infectious Diseases Specialist at BC Children's Hospital. He was recently named the Inaugural Health Research Foundation of Innovative Medicine's Canada Research Chair in Pandemic Preparedness. Thank you both for joining us here. So before we get into things, this is a question that's asked to all our guests. Tell us something about yourself that our viewers may not know about you. Do you have a secret hobby, a talent? Are you a swimmer, a master chef? Do you have a secret sticker collection that no one knows about? I'll start with Thryn in in-house. Sure. Over the past couple of years, my baking skills have become pretty good, I'd say. I, uh, on a daily basis, I'm baking something. Okay. I'm going to put my application into the Great Canadian Baking Show. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> you know, we should have done this at your house. I wouldn't mind something right now. It's a cold, rainy day, by the way, in Vancouver. You crave for something like a warm apple pie, a cinnamon bun, maybe a, a croissant. I think that'd be very nice with a latte. That's my thing. But Alon, let's hear from you. Well, so pre-pandemic, of course, a lot of people enjoyed traveling. My secret fact is that I've been to all 50 United States. Really? And uh, other traveling highlights was running with the bulls in Pamplona. So that, that's my highlight. Wow, all 50 states. Well, we're not going to talk about Florida today, <laughs> but uh, certainly yeah, that's quite a feat there. I'm going to get right into it. In his State of the Union address a few weeks ago, U.S. President Joe Biden recently announced a test-to-treat COVID plan with the goal of increasing access to oral antiviral treatments for COVID for those with a heightened risk of severe disease. Consumers will be able to walk into their local Walgreens, CVS, or Walmart, get tested, and if the results come back positive, can go home with a course of antiviral medicine. So I want to ask you guys, should something like this be implemented here in Canada in pharmacies? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. There's a few good reasons why pharmacies are a great place for this to be done. The first is that there's many pharmacies available. And unlike our current testing model, where it's done through COVID assessment centers across Canada, pharmacies are more plentiful and more accessible and have a pre-existing relationship with their patients. Mm. The second thing is that pharmacists themselves are experts in drug interactions. And when you think about what drugs they might provide to patients, including Paxlovid and perhaps newer ones that develop in the future, that is a, you know, a nice place for those to be addressed and for the, those healthcare workers to be able to provide counseling around that. And the third thing is that this can be done in a very timely fashion because most of these early therapeutics need to be done within a certain time window. And because pharmacies are so accessible to most people, that is probably the easiest way to get that done in a timely fashion. And not to be biased here, as a pharmacist myself, I think certainly from an access standpoint, as you mentioned, is something that I think would be of great interest to the practicing community. Brian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, if you look back at the past couple of years of this pandemic, what we've seen has really been striking is the inequity, particularly with access. And so if anything can be done to improve that and access to this very useful therapeutic is one of those components. Um, if we can increase that, by all means, we should do that. And that test and treat strategy is part of that, I think, as well. It's been used in many situations around the world. Malaria is the best case example where you get a positive test. It's a rapid test. You get a treatment right away. And it's probably saved the lives of thousands of children around the world in a similar 
scope, I think, a test and treat strategy here for COVID-19. We have a good test. We have a rapid test. We have an ability to screen for side effects, and we have an ability to make sure the right patients are getting it. Part of the challenge with Paxlovid is that I'd love to see who would benefit the most from that drug. Um, we do know from the studies that an unvaccinated group benefits quite a bit. I would love to see further studies to show how it benefits people right now with comorbidities who are vaccinated and what magnitude of benefit they would get. So that's good to know that there's a bit of a template that this there's models to to fall back on and build something like this around. I think that it would be nice to have some kind of guidance around the assessment strategy for pharmacists kind of to handhold and guide them. One challenge sometimes facing this proposal or when trials we're facing in general is the still limited supply of antiviral medications. And I know, Dr. Morty, you were part of a group that curated recent guidance around considerations for the use of Paxlovid to treat COVID-19 in the context of a limited supply with the Public Health Agency of Canada. How good of a job are we doing in terms of ensuring those patients who need these therapies, A, are being identified, and B, identified in a timely fashion as of today in Canada? Yeah, that's a hard one because we'd love to have data to say these patients who are positive are getting treatment within the right time frame, and that's consistent across every province. I'm not sure if we know that. I think every province has a framework as to which patients get these drugs, but whether or not that's able to be implemented at the provincial and local levels is a harder question to answer. I mean, you really have to get into how many patients have gotten this drug out of a denominator of all of the patients who could be eligible for it. And that's something we don't really have in Canada in terms of an ability to track. And so ideally, we would be doing a good job. I really don't know across our country how much Paxlovid is being used in the right population. If you look at the American context where they have much more drug, a lot of their Paxlovid is still sitting on shelves because they're unable to really deploy it in a timely fashion. Interesting. I was at the pharmacy yesterday, and we have two boxes. They're warmed up. They're sealed. They haven't been used yet. Our inaugural two boxes there. But Elon, anything else you want to add? I just say that this concept is going to be new for most people when it comes to respiratory viruses, because uh, if you look at other respiratory viruses, the only really commonly provided treatment for outpatients is Tamiflu, which is far easier to provide because of fewer drug interactions and generally fewer side effects. So the reason we don't test patients for respiratory viruses as outpatients, hmm. people who are not coming into hospital, is because it generally didn't affect management. But for COVID, this is where that's going to be the big difference between this respiratory virus and others is that for a subset of patients, there is going to be a need to test. And the only reason that testing will be provided, the only really most important reason, I should say, is because it changes management. That's why the testing and the treatment go hand in hand. And pharmacies, again, are the ideal place for that to happen. A good point about the testing for the sake of testing versus set testing for a change or the, the downstream implication of that. And certainly if it can lead to the right patient being identified in a timely manner and with the right therapeutic, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's an opportunity to also build a bit of a multidisciplinary framework around. So, I mean, at the same time, we are seeing that there's waning demand across Canada. And I, I almost would say a lack of urgency when it comes to the population lining up to get their booster doses. Many patients, when you talk to them, they say they feel two doses of the vaccine are good enough. The COVID-19 booster really isn't a priority for some Canadians. Why do you think that is? Like I think a lot of it is in how we frame the conversation. In the preamble just then, you framed it as a booster. And I think more broadly, it seems like this probably is a three-dose vaccine that was studied initially as a two-dose vaccine 
plus we've added this third dose. And so I think in the end, we probably made some mistakes in how we messaged this vaccine and its rollout. Has that impacted it directly? It's difficult to say. Um, there's probably lots of reasons why people aren't getting their third doses as quickly as they need to. So how we frame the communication around whether it's a booster. Hold that thought for a sec. Elon, any thoughts about this? Yeah, it's a very important point that the perception was, you know, get your two doses and we're going to be out of this pandemic kind of thing. Hmm. And so that was very, you know, maybe directly or indirectly messaged in various jurisdictions, the United States and Canada. So the perception was we should be done. Why are you asking me to get more done? And it became clear that as variants emerged, the efficacy of vaccines against mild or asymptomatic disease wasn't as good as it previously was. And to some extent, there's slightly less protection against severe disease as well, so, especially in high-risk populations. So I think it was that framing that, that really makes people not understand why a third dose is necessary. And perhaps framing the discussion more like we think about flu vaccination hmm. might help in the future, because it's certainly possible that perhaps for slightly different reasons, we're going to need more than one dose as a booster in the future. You guys both had an interesting point about the communication not being effectively framed. Now, if you were Dr. Tam or, you know, Canada's chief public health officer and you were told to be up on the stand and you had to call a booster by one name. So I'm going to give you a few options here. So you can call it a booster dose or do we call it as being fully vaccinated? That's option B. Do we call it being fully vaccinated with an additional dose? That's C. Or D, calling it being triple vaccinated. So what vote would resonate the most with the public? I probably would avoid the term fully okay. because I think that's always going to be a moving target. If you were to ask me, am I fully vaccinated against influenza, for example, I wouldn't really know what that means because it probably wanes over the course of a year and so on. I would say triple vaccinated or I've received three doses of the vaccine and then maybe get a fourth dose when that becomes the necessity based on the emerging data. So you're going with the triple vaccinated option? Uh, yes, I am. Okay. Uh, Elon, let's hear from you. I agree. Triple vaccinated makes sense. One other option you might want to consider is calling it up to date in your vaccination, because this is what we know currently about COVID vaccination. Just like with masks, it's something that will come and go perhaps over the next few years. Vaccination will be those measures that will be updated. And, you know, we're going to see whether we're going to need it, how many we're going to need, when we're going to need it. So saying to people, this is what you need for the current state of evidence or the current state of the pandemic in Canada, that may frame it a little bit better. Okay. Okay. And by the way, we will have Dr. Tam as a guest on the podcast. So we'll see what she comes up with. And <laughs> whoever whoever's the closest will get some kind of a prize. I don't know what that will be. But what are your thoughts about public health orders being more relaxed across the country, where more provinces are announcing the scrapping of mass mandates and even vaccine passports? Is the apathy correlated to this somehow, where people think the pandemic is in the rearview mirror and that from a public health perspective, things are opening up? Therefore, I'm, there's not as much of an urgency for me to get my booster shot. You know, the opening up that we're going through right now, it's converges of many, many factors. One is that millions of Canadians just got COVID. And so the likelihood of another sharp wave in the near future is lower compared to before. The second thing is that a high number of Canadians have been vaccinated. And the third is that there's definitely fatigue amongst, you know, the general population. So even if you were to try to maintain high levels of restrictions, the adherence is going to be poor. So certainly all of that converges to this thinking around across the board, not just in Canada, but many other similarly the liberal democratic countries where they do want to lift restrictions and it's becoming more and more unpopular. So that does, I think, contribute to the lack of urgency regarding boosting. 
It is important, though, to focus that message again for the high-risk populations, because that's where boosting is going to have the most effect. Hmm. When you think about how much messaging was done around the two doses originally, an immense amount of work was done at all levels of government, federal, provincial, municipal, and local health units to try to get people fully vaccinated. If you're trying to get that third dose out right now, you're going to have an immense amount of resources to convey that. Hmm. And really, the focus should be on the high-risk people if you do have limited resources to try to message that. It's confluence of really many factors that, that have allowed us to open up things a lot more now. And it, obviously, vaccines are a key pillar of that, you know, but in other infection control measures. Any thoughts, uh, uh, Srin? Yeah, nothing really too much to add to that. I'm not sure if we're loosening restrictions too quickly or not quick enough. It's hard to really titrate that to the right amount. I mean, hopefully, we'll land on the right spot here. And that, that's definitely a point of debate is, are we going too soon? There's folks who are immunocompromised on certain medications like biologics that are a bit worried about being in a restaurant, sitting next to someone who may not be vaccinated at all. Now, governments and public health officials have stopped short of adding the third dose requirement. Let's call it a, a triple vaccinated requirement to existing vaccine certificates. So do you support or think that adding the booster dose requirement as part of the vaccine certificate, assuming these vaccine certificates, let's say, remained in place, do you think that should be something that, you know, would help nudge individuals who are thinking about getting a booster that have not been boosted yet move forward? Like I'd say that if they haven't gotten their booster yet, and this is mid-March 2022, obtaining the vaccine certificate, which has been already in place for many months in many parts of the country um, for a few weeks or months longer, probably isn't going to move the needle that much more. And so I'm doubtful of that being an incentive for getting that third dose. I'm the role of the vaccine certificate is multifold. It's to provide safety in places like restaurants and things like that to people who may feel unsafe. And that is a completely separate part of it compared to whether it incentivizes folks. I agree that those are the two main objectives is to try to make the public safer and also to try to increase vaccination. And that incentive part is long gone now, meaning not going, it's likely not going to convince any more people. If you go back to the first indication, which is to try to increase safety, you're kind of stuck right now because we know that two doses has less efficacy compared to the previous variants against Omicron. Mm -hmm. So two doses is kind of a half measures now against Omicron or perhaps even the next variant. So you're left with either scrapping the thing altogether or mandating third doses. And there's a lot of challenges with trying to go to third dose mandatory vaccination for public places. Firstly is that, as I said, for millions of Canadians just got COVID. And according to NASI, even you're not supposed to get vaccinated after you just got COVID for at least three months. Mm. So you'd have to wait a while for millions of Canadians. And some of them don't even know they got COVID because testing requirements changed dramatically. So you wouldn't even know who could be eligible for vaccination as a booster for quite some time. The second thing is you're going to have to invest a lot of resources to get that number up. You think about how hard it was to get up to 90% in Canada. We're now around 40, 40, 50% across. It's going to take an immense amount of work to increase that. So you're going to be excluding a ton and ton of people. And again, it's always going to be the people who are marginalized who are going to be the hardest hit by that kind of mandate. So going from two to either zero or three, I don't think it's unreasonable to go back to go to zero, essentially. Right. So you guys don't think that the DAO will be really pushed much by having this mandate as part of a vaccine certificate. I think you're, you're hinting a little bit at the behavioral aspect of decision making where there is a push and pull effect where when you look at public health guidance, it's meant to guide and you don't want to have a situation where you feel you're being forced. I mean, there's a lot of conversation around that, but certainly it's always very fascinating. Um, and we'll get into how to engage patients on the front line around some of these decisions based on where they're getting their information from. Oh, I think I hear the phone ringing. 
All right, so this cues the Ask the Expert segment. So this is my favorite part of the podcast. This is where we take your questions from across the country. We have some excellent questions for both of our experts today to weigh in on. So I'm just going to get right into it with the first question. This first question is from Marty in St. John's, Newfoundland. And Marty's a healthcare provider who says he's having a challenge explaining the importance of a booster dose to some patients who claim that one can still get mild COVID breakthrough infection, even if they are boosted. And in fact, one of his patients said, is this a failure of the vaccines? How would you, if you were a frontline HCP dealing with a patient like that, how would you frame that? What would you suggest to help Marty in conveying a message to this patient? Yeah, I would say particularly for folks who are higher risk, that difference between Two and three doses for getting hospitalized or having severe disease is substantial. And so if that's what we really care about with getting a vaccine and converting this disease from something that puts you in a hospital to something that knocks you back for a day or two, but then you're back on your feet, that's a win in my mind. I'll say that I had three doses of a vaccine and also I had COVID just a few weeks ago. It was a very mild case. I I was tired for a couple of days and then I went back to work in it five days afterwards. So what you're suggesting is the mild breakthrough infection doesn't mean it's a vaccine failure. It's a vaccine success. It's a vaccine success. Okay. How would you approach that, Alon? Yeah, that's a brilliant way of putting it, that this is actually success, that you have mild disease. And I think people need to kind of try to compartmentalize in their minds two purposes of the vaccine. One is to try to reduce mild disease and therefore transmission. And the other is to reduce severe outcomes. Hmm. And vaccines still do an excellent job of preventing severe outcomes especially when you go from two to three doses. So it doesn't negate the effects of the vaccine if somebody acquires mild or asymptomatic disease. You know, breakthrough infections are not a, you know, doesn't mean it doesn't have that second function, which is to prevent hospitalization and death. Mm -hmm. And think it's important for patients to think about both of those as benefits. Well, there's the coaching tips, Marty. Hopefully that is something you can take back to your patients. Now, let's move into the next question. And I love this because it's really, we focus with the ASI expert about tangibles, real questions from real patients and providers. So this is from Kimberly in Toronto. We know current evidence demonstrates a vaccine-induced immunity wanes over time. How long is the duration of immunity from a booster dose? And is one vaccine shown to be, quote-unquote, better than the other? Any thoughts about that if you guys have seen the most recent data? Yeah, it's kind of tricky to answer based on which data you look at. There was a very good study came out of the NHS in January looking at the third dose boosters. And it looks like after six months, the effect had waned quite a significant degree. Of course, this was in the context of them having just had the Omicron wave. Okay. And the fact that Omicron, of course, was a different variant than what they previously experienced, which would have been Alpha and then Delta. Within about three months, according to that study, it was about 40 to 50% reduction in the protection. Then after six months, there was quite a substantial reduction. But of course, a lot of these data, it may be more challenging to interpret light of Omicron and which, uh, which variant might arise in the near future. So while it's true that boosting may have not as good a protection as we previously thought, it has some, to some degree, due to the fact that a new variant just arose. Right. So you have to take the context of where we're at now and the wave we're experiencing. Well, that gets to my her next question, which is well-placed, I think. We know that in Israel, Chile, Spain, Denmark, they're all offering fourth doses to certain at-risk groups. Kim was basically asking if the patient asked her, well, begrudgingly, do they have to get another booster dose? What would you say to that? 
Like, first, I wouldn't say it's another booster dose. I'd say it's probably completing your series for yourselves and getting an update um, on your vaccinations. I would say it's possible. I'd say we're still learning quite a bit about what our immune system does in response to the vaccines. And it's a global pandemic, and we're constantly updating our recommendations and evidence for these great vaccines. I like how you say another booster, kind of saying, well, there's more uncertainty. Is there going to be another and another and another? It's more of like today you're fully vaccinated. Next question from Kevin in Korea, BC. My patient asked me, do I need a booster if I've had COVID-19? Doesn't infection induce some kind of immunity? How would you address that? And this is a bit of a trickier one because like, there's two doses plus having Omicron, yep. for example, probably induces a good deal of immunity. We're not sure how much and we're not sure how long it lasts. And there's lots of evidence out there that's providing more and more information every day about the impact of having just two doses plus Omicron versus having three doses. It's likely the best time to get your booster is any time after you've recovered fully from that Omicron infection or that most recent infection. So likely probably around 30 days is what the recommendations land on right now. When it comes to booster doses, is one vaccine shown to be quote unquote better than the other? And any thoughts around that? In my mind, the two mRNA vaccines are interchangeable. And so I wouldn't think of one being better than the other. Yeah, I agree. So get whichever is offered to you as soon as you can. As we come towards being up the Ask the Expert segment, I want to shift gears slightly towards pediatric COVID vaccine. So we, this is a question asked by Jason here in Vancouver, BC. He's saying that we know that childhood vaccination could be improved. And we know that there's been challenges with schooling, socialization, reduce access to extracurricular activities. All this has had a profound impact on the mental and physical well-being of children but as well their families. He has trouble engaging parents when they ask if their child should get the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm sure this is something that you guys have come across. How do you approach that conversation? Yeah, it's, it's of course, is a challenge because as most people are aware, COVID is less severe, fortunately less severe in very young people as compared to most elderly. So it's harder for people to see the benefit in, amongst younger children. But in the age group that have been well studied, five and above, five to 18, it has been shown the vaccine provides good protection and it prevents the most severe outcomes. Although we're less concerned about death and hospitalization of that age group, there are other side effects that we'd be concerned about due to COVID infection. Hmm. And that includes multi-system inflammation and also what's commonly colloquially termed long COVID. So even though those outcomes are not common to begin with, we know that vaccination based on more recent data protects or reduces the chances substantially of those poor outcomes developing. And so when you think about what can COVID do to your body, it's not only the severe and dreaded outcomes of hospitalization and death, but there are other outcomes to consider. And looking at the overall risk associated with vaccination weighed against those risks, especially considering that we don't anticipate COVID is going to go away anytime soon, and perhaps we'll experience you know, more spikes, more waves mm -hmm. in the coming fall and winter, that is what I would say is a motivating factor for parents to have their children vaccinated. Some really key points you mentioned about disease severity and also the potential for them to be really effective carriers and spreaders essentially for the virus. I'll highlight that all of our childhood vaccines are meant to prevent rare outcomes from happening. 
And so our measles vaccines, our rubella vaccines, all of these things are rare diseases and were rare um, and became rare because of our vaccinations. And so with COVID, like Miss C, as Dr. Weissman mentioned, and long COVID, they're, they're rare. And we'd like to make them even more rare with a very safe vaccine that's very effective against those outcomes. Yes, we hope that COVID can be one of those rare diseases at yeah. some point, yeah. and this can help push that. Okay, the last question we have here is from Nasir in Winnipeg. So according to the current data, when I have a discussion with my patient, how protective is the booster dose against the Omicron variant? Yeah, there are varying studies looking at what degree the what the protection is. And, and again, you have to think about it in two ways. One is against mild and asymptomatic disease, and the second is against severe outcomes, such as hospitalization and death. And it's true that is reduced compared to previous variants, but for hospitalization and death, it'd be still in the somewhere of the 75 to 90% range. Hmm. And for mild asymptomatic disease, it'd be somewhere in the range of 60 to 70% approximately for the mRNA vaccines. Okay. So it's still substantial, but it is reduced compared to previous variants. Perhaps you have other, other estimates that you're more familiar with. No, nothing more than that. It's been challenging to document because of our testing strategies haven't changed in Canada over the past couple of months. And likely there's a large number of mildly symptomatic disease that was not counted. And so documenting the effectiveness of this booster against Omicron is challenging. I will say it's probably lost some effect compared to previous variants, but I can't say it's lost at all. And does the protection generally wane four to five, six months down the line? Yeah, that's what we think is possible, but we don't really know for a fact. That really is translating to increasing in hospitalizations or death, which ultimately is the outcomes that we're really caring about with our vaccine rollouts. Well, thank you so much for all your questions. As we come towards the end here, I want to talk about vaccine rates and widespread population level immunity uh, that's needed to keep COVID-19 infections at bay. So this concept of population level or herd level immunity has been brought up in media by patients and people are wondering, why are we not there yet? Are we there yet? First, could you guys explain what population level immunity is briefly? And then I'd like to understand your thoughts about, are we there yet? Will we ever get there? Sure. And so if you think of something like measles, for example, where like 90 something percent of the population is immune because of vaccination, that added 5% is protected because there's no measles circulating because everybody else is immune and it's enough to keep the disease at bay. In COVID-19, it's a bit harder to get there because of its transmissibility and because of the way the vaccine, while it prevents against severe disease and prevents against hospitalization, it may not do everything against getting even mild or mild symptom asymptomatic disease. And so I'm not convinced we'll reach a point where we have population level immunity where there'll be no disease because, say, 95% of the population has gotten a vaccine or has gotten the disease in the past. Okay. We may not actually reach that point. Yeah. What, what people commonly think about herd immunity and endemicity, and probably a lot of people have heard of the reproductive number, the mm. target there would be reproductive number less than one, or that's the idea behind it, that you don't have an explosion of cases as a result of new cases. And one of the other elements that's threatening that possibility is new variants arising. You know, we may have that for some time. We may have a high level of immunity, either natural or vaccine induced. But what if a new variant arises and we don't have sufficient immunity? There's no reason why the reproductive number wouldn't rise above one in those cases. Hmm. So that's the, the threat we're always facing. The hope is that at least to some degree, these cases don't result in severe disease. That would be the goal for all of this, for us to be sufficiently protected from using immunization from that. 
That's another interesting concept that I certainly I think we've seen as well being talked about the reproductive rates. For example, here in BC, our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, was was sharing some of these numbers when we were starting. I forgot which wave it was now, but some of the projections and modeling and the number of contacts that you need to have to prevent the exponential spread of the cases. Now, I want to hear from both of you. What more could frontline healthcare providers be doing? For example, patients come to pharmacies to get, let's say, their annual flu shot or getting other vaccines or getting medication refills. Could the booster conversation, you know, asking every patient comes in, have you had your booster? What role do you think frontline HTPs, what more could they be doing to help move the dial on boosters? Yeah, it's that conversation piece. I think really engaging their patients and the population as to the merits of these third doses and making sure that everyone who seeks out their care is engaged in that process. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, patients will come for care for a variety of reasons. Making COVID-19 vaccination part of your discussion, regardless of why the patient is there to see you, especially if you have a longstanding relationship with the patient, like primary nurse, physician, pharmacist, many others. That's one way you can try to make patients understand the importance of boosting. So don't assume anyone who's coming up to you has their booster, assume they don't. I think that's what I'm hearing from you guys and be proactive in terms of prompting and asking them. All right, so now I'm gonna get each of you to take out your crystal balls that have been given to you that to look into the future. What's the roadmap for the coming year, maybe in the coming six months in terms of the pandemic. Where are we headed? Let's say we have this conversation a year from now. If you had to make some broad predictions, what would they be? I'm going to get in trouble because I'm (laughs) sure I'm going to be wrong. I'm optimistic for the next few months for a variety of reasons based on our population has gotten their vaccines, based on the number of people who have gotten recently infected, that the amount of immunity we have is enough to avoid surges in the coming weeks and months. The thing that maybe keeps me a bit nervous is possibly an, a variant emerging that evades that immunity, at least partially, and its ability to cause a surge even in a highly immune population like we have in Canada right now. The best thing to do about that is to reduce the spread of the virus everywhere, and that means getting vaccines to as many places in the world as possible. All right. Okay. So we have this on the record, and we will revisit it. Elon. I agree. I I would guess that the next few months are going to be very stable until around October, November, when we, I would guess that we're going to see a a rise in cases again, regardless of the variant arising, only because of winter season and there's more transmission in congregate settings and other more high contact areas. And yes, I mean, really the big variable that we don't know about is the variants. You know, what if a variant shows up tomorrow, then yeah, May could be just as bad as last year. But barring that, it would seem that the confluence of factors that we discussed earlier would mean that we probably will have a stable summer. Yeah, that's famous last words. Okay, so you're on the record there too. As we conclude here, we'll have to have this conversation, let's say a year from now, probably at Srin's house, because we're expecting some very nice baked goods. That's what I've been told, right, Alon? Yeah, yeah, he's a he's an excellent baker, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. We'll have to fly you in uh, from Toronto and get you out of that weather as well. But yeah, we'll have this all on record. Let's see what their predictions look like. We really appreciate time. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman in Toronto and Dr. Srinivas Murthy from here in Vancouver. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us as part of the Find My Vaccine podcast. We look forward to hearing your comments. As always, feel free to email us at info at myvaccinepodcast.com. Until next time, this is Aaron Sahoda, primary care pharmacist and one of the hosts of the podcast. Talk soon. Wait, Aaron, you forgot to mention. As a reminder, we kind of have to say this. The opinions expressed on the Find My Vaccine podcast 
are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. By the way, speaking of boosters, if you want to learn more about mRNA vaccine technology, the Chief Scientific Officer of Moderna will be speaking in Vancouver at the Canadian Association for Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases Conference in April. Also a lot of other cool experts. Check out the link in the podcast show notes.